Good morning. Good morning. Man, you know, there's, from up here, I was sitting there and looking, you know, there's like no one behind me, no one next to me over here. It's just like the, <laughs> this is the splash zone and no one wants to be in it. But that was a very resounding good morning still. So it's encouraging. It's, it's good to uh, be, be together this morning to sing those truths of the gospel together. Uh, today's a communion Sunday. And so after the sermon today, we're going to, to take the Lord's Supper together and, and to remember the death of Christ until he comes. And before we pray this morning, uh, I, I want to introduce our new sermon series uh, that we're going to begin in the next few months to you. And so um, we're going to be uh, for three or four months ahead in the books of First and Second Thessalonians, the, the letters that Paul wrote to the churches in Thessalonica. And the title of the series is going to be Until He Comes. And you can put that up if you want, Andrew, right now. Andrew did not design that. Uh, <laughs> Daniel is designing us uh, a slide for the series, but, but wasn't ready yet. And this morning, Andrew just, just Googled, I guess, Until He Comes. For, and he found it. He found First and Second Thessalonians, Until He Comes. And, and, uh, and so I guess other people have looked at this book and, and also agreed that that's the theme of the book. So that was encouraging to me that, that uh, I'm not alone in that. But Until He Comes is the title of this series. And as I've been reflecting on these letters over the past month, reading them, thinking about them, praying through them, I've grown more and more thankful for the message of First and Second Thessalonians. And I've grown more and more excited to go through this together as a church. I just believe this is, this is exactly uh, what we need right now for the juncture we're in as a church. And, and so I want, I want to say before we get into it that these letters are unique. Uh, Paul, in these letters, does not give an extended treatise on the gospel, like you see in the book of Romans. He, he, he doesn't go into three chapters on the depravity of man and, and eight chapters on justification. But he doesn't do that. He, he doesn't get into the relationship between grace and works and faith like he does in, say, Galatians. He doesn't get into the, the nature of the person and work of Christ like he does in Colossians. There's, there's not many extended doctrinal treatments in First and Second Thessalonians. It's a unique letter. Now, don't get me wrong, all of those truths are in this letter. I mean, just the phrase we're going to look at today, the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a loaded term that tells us who Jesus is. It's all there, but it's not the focus of the letters. Instead, what we find in First and Second Thessalonians is Paul writing as a pastor. Paul, Paul writing to a church that he helped plant and, and expressing his thankfulness and his love and his heart to them. And, and here's the message in a nutshell, of First and Second Thessalonians. Here, here's what Paul wants to say to the church. First, he, he says, I'm thankful for you. And, and, you know, usually in Paul's letters, you have a thanksgiving at the beginning of the letter. It may last a few verses, but in First Thessalonians in particular, that thanksgiving lasts for three chapters. It's essentially three chapters of Paul saying, here's why I'm thankful for you. And like Paul does, he rabbit trails around in those three chapters, but then he gets back to you. But, but I'm, I'm just saying I'm thankful for you, church. I'm thankful for you. I, I love you. I'm so, I'm so glad to hear how you're doing. That, that's where he is. Then, then what he wants to communicate to them is Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back over and over and over again. Thessalonians is a forward-looking book. Salvation is a future event that's going to happen to us when Jesus comes back. Jesus has died for us. We have been put in Christ. And one day he's going to come back and he's going to save us. He's going to judge the world, save his people, and like we just saying, make all things new. 
And Paul's reminding them of that. He's saying Jesus is coming back. And then in light of that, in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back, keep doing what you're doing. That's his message. Keep doing what you're doing. And just do it more and more. Like, don't be content with where you are. Press forward. Do more and more, but, but don't do anything different. You're already loving each other. You're already pursuing holiness. You're already reaching out. Just keep doing it more and more because Jesus is coming back. That's the message of First and Second Thessalonians right there. We're going to be in that for the next few months. And as we enter into this series, this is, this is my heart and my encouragement. And that's that, that Redeemer Church. I'm so thankful for you. I'm so thankful that God brought us here and, and, and that he has bound our lives together in the local church. And I'm so thankful that I can look at your lives and see God's evidence of grace in your lives. You, you love each other. You're committed to gathering together. You, you encourage each other in the Lord. You pray for each other. You, you seek to bear a good testimony in the world. I'm thankful for that grace in your lives. Redeemer Church, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is going to return one day. As Paul wrote in Romans, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. It's closer today than it was yesterday. And it'll be closer tomorrow than it was today. He's coming back. We're moving towards that day. And because he's coming back, Redeemer Church, just as you're already doing, pursue the glory of God and the joy of all people more and more and more until he returns. Pursue love, pursue service, pursue witness, pursue holiness more and more until Jesus returns. That, that, that is the heart of 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. That is, that is the message that God is working into. My heart, I pray he works into our hearts, is that God has, God has done a work of grace in our lives. Jesus is coming back. And so let's love and pursue his glory more and more until Jesus comes. So with that, let's pray, and then we will dive into 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Father, we come to you this morning, and we praise you as the, the God of our salvation. Father, we... We praise you as the God who has always been and always will be the, the God over all things and, and who holds all things together. We, we cannot find adequate language to describe who you are. We never will through all eternity. And we praise you this morning. Lord, we praise you for your working of grace in our lives. And we praise you that though we were rebel sinners, just like Andrew preached last week, that, that you initiated in our lives and that you reached in and you did heart surgery and you, you changed us and you gave us spiritual eyes to see you and to, and to know you through Jesus. We praise you, God, this morning for these things. Lord, we live in a broken world and we do pray that you would make all things new. Father, our hearts just uh, have trouble even comprehending the, what, what it means, what the reality is that one day there will be no more tears and no more crying and no more pain, no more hurt and no more sickness and no more death. But that day is coming and we believe and we pray you'd help us believe. Lord, help us believe in that because we know that 
It's as we believe and hope in that day that, that you come and you powerfully transform our lives so that, so that we live in a way that the world looks at and, and says that's, that's foolish, that's a waste, unless, unless Christ returns. And, and, and God, we want to live lives that are witnessing to that day. And so we, we pray, even as we go into this series, as we fix our eyes ahead on the day that Jesus returns, that you would work in us and that you would move in us, you would change us. And, and God, we do pray you would receive glory, knowing that in that we will receive joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God cares about the local church. You guys probably believe that, but I want you to hear it this morning. God cares about the local church. In Matthew 16, Peter confessed to Jesus, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And, and, and Jesus says, yes, God, God has shown this to you, and you are Peter, and on this rock and on this confession, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, when Jesus said, I will build my church, he was making a promise to build his universal church through all time. The, the, the universal church is is a way to describe the people of God over all time and from all places. Every tribe, tongue, language, nation that one day will stand before the throne of God and of the Lamb, that is the universal church. And Jesus said to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He promised to do it. He is doing it. He will accomplish it. Jesus is building his church. And, and, and he's speaking there of the universal people of God. But when you turn to the book of Acts, what do you see that that looks like? What, what does it actually look like in the book of Acts? You see a church begin in Jerusalem. A group of people gathered together through faith in Jesus, worshiping God. And, and then you see those people, God providentially moving them. And, and, and all of a sudden you see another group of people in Samaria. And you see another group of people over here in Damascus. And you see a group of people spring up in Antioch. And you see a group of people in Galatia and in Philippi and Thessalonica and Ephesus. You see God building his church through what? Through establishing local churches. Jesus is building his universal people of God by, by the gospel going forward and local churches being established, local groups of believers being planted. And so what that means is that while Jesus, yes, is building his universal church, it means that he is also deeply invested in local churches. It means that God cares about the local church. And what that means for us is that God cares about Redeemer Church. It means that God is deeply invested in Redeemer Church. That God has a vested interest in Redeemer Church. And as members of Redeemer Church, that means that God has a vested interest in you as part of this church and a purpose for you. And so this morning, my, my prayer is that you will just be greatly encouraged in the reality that God cares about the local church. So the text this morning is 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1. If you would look down with me at 1 Thessalonians 1, 
and we will read verse 1 today. And every week we'll just do one verse, and we will be in this series for years and years and years, all right? So, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So in this passage, we are going to see three ways that God cares about the local church. Three things that show us in this text that God cares about the local church. And and the first thing that we want to notice is that God plants the local church in the world. God plants the local church in the world. And so if you would again just look at verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. What we have there is we have the authors of this letter and we have the recipients of this letter. We have Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. That is Paul the Apostle. Silvanus, who who you you may know better as Silas, Paul's missionary co-worker in the book of Acts. And Timothy, Paul's disciple, Paul's protege, Paul's Paul's friend and co-worker. And and these three men are writing to the church of the Thessalonians, the, the group of people gathered together in Thessalonica in Jesus' name. That's who he's writing to. He's writing to that local church. And we could go into more detail about who, who these three men were and about the city of Thessalonica and, and all these details, but what I want to ask this morning is as we're, as we're reading this letter from the vantage point of the Thessalonians, they, they hear there's a letter from Paul and Silas and Timothy. What are they thinking in that moment? They're thinking, these are the men who brought us the gospel. These are the men who came to us with the good news. And so I want us to go back to the book of Acts this morning and to... Look at how God brought about this church. Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 16. Chapter 16. And we're going to read an interesting text here. And I'm not going to answer all the questions that it will raise in your minds. All right? Acts 16, look at verse 6. Acts 16, starting in verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so what we see in those verses is is that God is directing Paul and his co-workers regarding where they should go with the gospel. They're trying to go here, the Holy Spirit says no. They're trying to go here, he says no. and, And then he gets this vision that has a man of Macedonia, which is where Philippi was, it's where Thessalonica was, and, and this, this man is saying to Paul in the vision, come help us. And Paul wakes up and they conclude, God wants us to go there and share the gospel with them. And so they, they go to Philippi first, and, and they establish a church there, and then in chapter 17, we see them go to Thessalonica. So turn to chapter 17 now, 
And we'll read about this. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And so we'll stop there. We'll go back to Acts in a few moments, but but we'll just stop there and see that that God planted this church, didn't he? Can, can you see that from Acts 16 and 17? God planted this church. He directed them. He initiated it. He sent them there. They preached the gospel, and they believed. Some of the Jews believed. Many of the Gentiles who were in the temple believed. So some leading ladies in the town believed, and, and they were a church. They were a group of people that had put their faith in Christ and that God had established there. And so, what, what I want you to see there, just as we go back, and you can turn to Thessalonians again, but as we look at those passages, is, is just God's initiative in that. God's, God's purpose in that. I mean, you can tell this wasn't Paul's grand idea, right? God directed it, and God planted it. Now, many of you probably know the Mosers are not gardeners. Really, almost anything to do with nature, we're we're not that, all right? And so, though though we enjoy nature, and we have trouble keeping cactuses alive, okay? So, so we are not gardeners, but but I do love BLT sandwiches, bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwiches with extra bacon, right? And so, so I just want right, right now for you to go into the very, very far reaches of your imagination and pretend like I was planting a garden, all right? I know it's a stretch. And so, so just imagine with me that, that I decide to plant my own tomato vine. Is that what you call it, a tomato vine? Is that right? Okay. That shows, right? My own tomato vine, and it's just full of delicious, juicy, homegrown tomatoes for my BLT sandwich. Now, if I want to do that, I've got some work to do. We, we, we bought a house uh, a little over a year ago, and it came with a garden bed, which right now is in complete disarray. And so I would need to go, and I would need to fix up the garden bed, and weed eat the garden bed, and get it ready to plant something in there. Then I would need to go to the store. I would need to figure out the right soil, figure out where the tomato seeds are. I would need to go plant them, tend the ground, watch over them. And all that work that I would put into planting those tomatoes would would tell you something about me. I want tomatoes. (laughs) Right? That's that's what you could logically conclude. Phil must really want tomatoes to go through all that work to do it himself. And and he must really care about those tomatoes. and, And my purpose in doing that would be to have a delicious BLT sandwich. Right? I've, I've planted it for a reason, and, and that's, that's common sense. You don't plant something without having a reason for doing that. Now, now realize that God is the one who, who plants the local church. He, he's the one who does it. He initiates it. He prepares the soil. He, he tends to it. He watches over it, as it were. And what does that imply? It, it implies that God is invested, doesn't it? it? It implies that God has a purpose for the local church. It implies that he has a desire for the local church. He cares about the local church. 
We, we see that in the fact that he's the one who plants it. Why else would he plant it if it wasn't his purpose, wasn't his desire? So, so seven years ago, the elders of Anderson Bible Church and Grace Fellowship Community Church began praying about whether God would have them to plant a church in the Oxford community. And you know what? In, in previous years, they had sought to plant other places. And in and, and God's providence, he didn't allow it. But they prayed, they came together, families from both churches came, they prayed, they, they came together, and in August of 2012, Redeemer Church held its first worship service. And, and, and from here today, if we look backward through time on that day, we, we can look back through the ups and downs and through the seasons of growth, the seasons of change, the seasons of trial, and we can know this morning God planted Redeemer Church. He did it. He established us, he has sustained us, and he has been fulfilling his purposes in and through us. He has been doing that. And so an application at this point, if you're a member of Redeemer Church, this morning is just very simple. This excites me. It's exciting to me to know that God did it. To know that he has sustained it, that he has a purpose for it, that, that just like anyone planting something in their garden, God has planted us for a reason. He, he desires us. He wants us. He's going to use us. He has a reason. And so I just want to encourage you this morning from this first point, be excited to be a part of what God's doing. Be excited about it. We, we, we don't look spectacular to the world, but Jesus is building his universal church through local churches like ours all around the world. Little groups of people that don't look like anything but in the end, there will be a group of people from every tribe and ton and nation worshiping God that was built through those local churches. And so be excited about the fact that God has put you in a local church, which is the center of his redemptive activity in the world. We're in the very center of it right here. And so be excited this morning. So, so we see that God cares about the local church because he plants it. But, but secondly, we see that God also places the local church in himself. He places the local church in himself. Now, at this point, I want to ask the youth to take a pop quiz. All right? <laughs> so, let's see. I'm trying to see who, who all is here today. Brayden and Wes and Riley and Brody and Christopher and Jesse. All right. So, <laughs> Cody. So, what was the very first Bible study principle that we looked at in the book of James. Very first one. Come on. <laughs> Chris. Now, we, we've done conjunctions matter like eight times, though, haven't we? So, <laughs> conjunctions really matter, all right? <laughs> I'm so glad you remember that. No, that was, that's, that's not week number two. Okay. So, and I just want to give it a shot. It's really okay. Lauren? Greetings matter. Yeah, ding, ding, ding. All right. So, so thank you, Lauren. I'm glad you're not even a youth, but, but you heard it. So, greetings matter. Well, maybe we'll review that principle later. So, <laughs> greetings matter. And, and here's the thing. And, and letters like James or Romans or, in this case, 1 Thessalonians, the biblical authors don't waste their greetings. There's not a wasted word in what they say. So, so for example, the Apostle Peter begins his letter 
by writing to the elect exiles. And he didn't just, he wasn't just writing and said, I'll just call them elect exiles this time. Like willy-nilly throwing that term around. No, he had a purpose for that. He, he, he was writing to a church that was struggling to, to suffer for the gospel and to pursue holiness. And he wanted to remind them who they were. You are elect exiles. And that, and that greeting mattered. And, and so here in 1 Thessalonians, I mean, this is a very short greeting. But let's look at what he says. He says, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it may be short, but it is meaningful. Paul wants to remind the Thessalonian church that it is in God. It is in God. God has placed the local church in himself. So, so we need to ask two questions at this point. First, what does it mean for a local church to be in God? And then second, why does Paul emphasize this reality in his greeting? And so to help us get at what in means, let me remind you what Paul usually says. Paul would usually say, to the church of God, right? And by saying to the church of God, he would mean the church that belongs to God, the church whose identity is the people of God. And that's completely true of the Thessalonian church, of, of, of any true church, is that, is that churches are the people of God. The church is the people of God. But here, he does not say the church of God, does he? He, he says the church in God. And what Paul is emphasizing here is not so much our identity as God's people, though we are. He is emphasizing our position as God's people. He's emphasizing our position. By saying in, he's reminding them not who they are, but rather where they are. Where are they? They're in God. They are in God. And look more closely. We're not just in God generically, are we? We are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in the true triune God. God has placed us in himself. When the gospel came to you and you believed it, the Spirit of God was given to you. And he united you to God in Christ. And so this morning, we are in union with the triune God. Now, if you're like me at this point, this, this probably feels very abstract and very hard to grasp. And, and after reading the commentaries this week, I can tell you that we are not alone in that. The commentaries also find it very abstract and very hard to grasp. The language of being in God and in Christ, that's a deep well that we could draw so much truth from. It's a rich metaphor. But again, I want to emphasize, greetings matter. And Paul is saying this for a reason in the context of this letter. And so what is Paul's purpose in reminding the Thessalonian believers that they are in union with God? Why does he want them to know that? Why does he emphasize this? And so if you would, turn back with me to Acts 17. We're going to finish looking at the story of the Thessalonian church there, Acts 17. Because I want you to see what happened once God established this church. Acts 17, in verse 4, a number of them believe, and then verse 5 comes, and it says, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. 
the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And so, when this church was planted, what immediately happened? They were persecuted. Immediately persecuted by the Jews. And the Jews even bring them before the city officials and the Gentiles, and the Gentiles take money from them. And we know from other parts of the New Testament that the Thessalonians were known for their poverty. And, and it's probable that they were in poverty because they were being persecuted for their faith. And, and so this young church is planted, and Paul and his co-workers are forced to leave prematurely. They can't stay there and do discipleship. They can't stay there and, and lay all these foundations for them. They, they're forced to leave. And we know from this very letter that Paul is anxious for them. Paul wants to know how are they doing, what's going to happen to their faith. But, but here he reminds them, you are in God. You are in Christ. Though you face trials and tribulations in this world, God has firmly fixed you in himself. Though people might harm you, they might even kill you, nothing can actually move you from the place you have in God. You are in this world temporarily, but you are in God now and forever. That's what he's saying. He's reminding them where their lives are. Their lives aren't here. Their lives aren't here in this world where they're being persecuted. Their lives are in God. They are with God. They are in union with God. Listen to how the old hymn, The Church is One Foundation, connects these realities of trials in the world and union with God and our hope of glory. Listen to what it says. It says, Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly, on high, may dwell with thee. Now, now you might not have caught everything there, but I want to hear what it was saying. It's saying we are in the middle of tribulation in this world. But because we have union with God right now, we are confident that one day we will dwell with him in glory. That's what those lines are saying. We, we're, we're facing it right now. We're in the middle of it, but we have union with God. We are in Him, and so one day we know we will be with Him. This is the reality, church, is that, is that because God has planted the local church in the world, the local church will continually be marked by trials and suffering. We are planted in a world that is raging against God. We are planted in a world that is broken by sin. We are planted in a world that is following the devil. And because of that, we will regularly experience, as a church, spiritual attack. We are an outpost of the kingdom of God sitting in the middle of the kingdom of this world. But this is the greater reality. We are in God. We are in God. As Paul says elsewhere, he says our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And what that means is that when Christ appears, we will also appear with him in glory. Our union with God now guarantees our inheritance with God forever. And so church family, this morning in the midst of trials, and in the midst of brokenness, and in the midst of questions, and in the midst of suffering, and in the midst of persecution, and in the midst of disease, in the midst of it all, we can be encouraged. 
in the midst of all of that, we can actually be encouraged because we live in union with God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So be encouraged this morning. Our lives are sheltered inside the triune God, and we will live with him forever. We are in God. God cares about the local church, and so he plants the local church in the world. He places the local church in himself, and finally, God pursues the local church with his grace. God pursues the local church with his grace. Paul concludes his greeting with the words, grace to you and peace. And you know, to us, this has become standard. Grace and peace. That's what Paul always says. But we need to realize that this was anything but standard to the Thessalonians when they heard it. What was standard for them was simply greetings, or, or for Jewish people, peace to you. But, but grace and peace was new. But what Paul did is he self-consciously transformed a standard greeting into a gospel greeting. He, he, he intentionally made it into a gospel greeting and said, grace to you and peace. Last week, Andrew Haynes preached from Romans 5, 1 and 2, and he explained grace and peace for us from that text. And I'm just going to try to summarize what he said. Grace refers to God's loving initiative to give unmerited favor to rebel sinners. That's what grace is. It's God's loving initiative to give unmerited favor to rebel sinners. And peace is the result of grace. Peace is the reconciled relationship that flows from that grace. We, we hated God. We were enemies of God. We were objectively guilty before God in his courtroom. But God, in, in his seemingly scandalous grace, declares the guilty to be not guilty. He, he gives favor where wrath is due. And yet, he does not undermine his justice when he does that. Because this free grace, this, this, this free grace comes at the cost of the blood of Christ. The one who perfectly pleased God was crushed as an enemy of God. So that enemies of God, like you and me, would receive God's unmerited favor and everlasting peace. So, so, so in a sense, you could say the good news of the gospel is this, grace to you and peace. That's the good news right there, grace to you and peace. And all that that means and all that that represents in who Jesus is and what he did for us rebel sinners and how he has delivered us into this, this grace in which we now stand. And so if you've repented of your sins, you've put your faith in Christ alone for salvation, then you've received that. You've received grace from God. You have peace with God Yet this morning, here's what we need to realize. is that grace and peace were not just one-time gifts from the past. God continually pursues us with his grace and peace throughout our lives. You know, you know, Paul's not just stating here, grace and peace have come to you. This is Paul saying, my prayer and my desire and my confidence is that grace and peace will come to you. That God, God is sending his grace and peace to you. God's grace and peace are, are dynamic and they are moving toward the church. That's what Paul is saying. Now this is the first week of November and so I want to give a disclaimer that I officially support anyone who wants to listen to Christmas music now. Anyone who, is, who wants to drink peppermint mochas, you have my support. It's November. So imagine with me it's Christmas morning. All right? And... And I specifically want to ask 
you dads to imagine with me this Christmas morning. And so you wake up and you are in your matching Christmas jammies with your family, right? <laughs> I know that you all have them. And so kids are excited. They're bouncing off the walls. You, you, you walk down the stairs and, and you're groggy and you need coffee. And, and just like the commercials, you look out your window and it, what's in your driveway? A brand new car <laughs> with a big red bow on it. I don't think that ever happens in real life, but it's great in the commercials, and so we're just going to roll with it. You, get, you see this brand new car, and, and you look over at your family, and they're just looking adoringly at you, and we love you, Dad. Merry Christmas, you know. And so then your wife comes, and she, she says, sweetie, I've got good news. There's a lifetime warranty on that car. And let's just put aside the fact that, that all of this would, would actually accrue so much debt in this person's life that... that it wouldn't be worth it, but let's just put that aside for the moment and say, okay, you got this new car with this lifetime warranty, all right? And so, so you start driving it, and one day you're taking it out for a spin, and, and you get a little fender bender. And, and so you, you look at it, and you say, I know I've got a lifetime warranty, but I can fix that. So you go home, and you get the duct tape, and, and you just you know, get that bumper back on there, and you're good to go, all right? And then a few months later, you, you're, you're driving again, and and you, you get another, another accident, and, and this time there's, there's a dent in the door, but I, I, don't, I don't need to take that anywhere. I can just get one of those pop-a-dent things, and we'll, we'll take care of that ourselves. And so, so it's good. You're, you're taking care of your car. You don't, you don't need that warranty. You're driving it, and, you, and, and all of a sudden the, the brakes are, are bad, and this, this car has to, turned out to be a total lemon, all right? But, but you just say, well, I, I know a guy who can help me with that, and he's got, he gives a good price. And instead of taking it to the, to the lifetime warranty at the dealership, you, you go over here and you pay this guy to fix your brakes. And, and from then on, your brakes sound a little squeaky, but they work. And, and, and you, you go throughout your whole life with this new car with a lifetime warranty, just trying to fix it yourself, or you're, or you're paying someone to do it, and you have this lifetime warranty with you the whole time. That's absurd, isn't it? it, it, it that would make no sense. Why, why would you not, in, in even the slightest scratch, you would take it and say, fix this. I've got a lifetime warranty, right? Well, here's, here's the thing. The moment we believed, the, the moment that we put our faith in Christ, we, we received a gift we could never have earned. We, we received God's unmerited favor and God's everlasting peace. We had it then and there. But we desperately need that grace and peace every day of our lives. God, God didn't give us his grace and peace and say, now don't mess this up. God continually gives us that grace and peace. He continually calls us back to it. And, and how absurd is it for us when we sin to not go back to that grace? How absurd is it for us when, when we are experiencing um, the, the, the tribulations of this world to, to not go back to the God who gives us peace with himself, everlasting peace? It doesn't make any sense. But God continually pursues us with his grace and peace. He, he, he calls us back to his grace and peace. He, he calls broken people, broken sinners, back over and over again. It's a gift that continues on and on in our lives. It's not just a one-time thing. It's a continual reality. And so if it's a continual reality, then, then what should we do? If God is pursuing us with his grace and peace, then, then what do we do in response to that? Now, 
what if, what if this morning we read this verse? I said, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And I said, church, we just read grace to you and peace. We don't even need to read this book anymore. God, God has given his grace and peace to us. Let's, let's go to a new series next week. Would we receive the grace and peace of this book? No. No, we, we, we would forfeit it. The grace and peace that God is pursuing us with will come as we read it, as we think about it, as we press into it, as we help each other apply it. God gives his grace and peace to us as we put ourselves in the path of it. It's what's referred to as, as the means of grace. Now, that does not mean the way to earn grace. That's antithetical to what grace is. Grace is unmerited. But God has revealed where to go to put yourself in the path of that grace. And, and, and the clearest way that I explain, where, where is that? What are those means of grace? It's his word, his word which testifies to Christ. It's, it's prayer made by faith in Jesus' name, and it's the life of the local church which centers itself on Christ. The word, prayer, and the life of the local church centered on Christ. These are the means of grace. And if God is pursuing us with his grace, and if we need his grace, then we will put ourselves in the path of his grace. We will invest ourselves in his word, and we will invest ourselves in prayer, and we will invest ourselves in the life of the church. I want to call you to, to invest yourself eagerly where his grace and peace are found. We're about to take communion. And this is a time where all of these things really come together. Where we look to Christ and we hear the word of the gospel and we pray to him and we do it together as a body. And God is pursuing us this morning with his grace and peace because he cares about us. Because he cares about the local church. But, but as we enter into this time of communion, I want to remind you also that God cares about you. You know, Paul said at one point, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. And he also said, Christ loved the church and gave himself for the church. And both of those are inextricable realities. He loved the church and gave himself for the church. And he loves you and he gave himself for you specifically. He set his love on you. God set his love on you. God gave his son for you. God sent the gospel to you. God adopted you into his family. God cares about you. And if you know that God cares about you, then, then here's what you also need to know this morning. Because God cares about you, God placed you in the local church. That's the connection that I want you to make this morning. Because he cares about you, he placed you in the local church. And if you are thankful for the love of God, and if you trust the love of God for you, if you trust the care of God, if you rejoice in the grace of God, then realize this is God's gift to you, to be part of the church, to be part of the body, to to know him through it, to enjoy him, to experience his grace and peace in the context of this gift to you to know Christ through the local church, through the word of God, through prayer, through life together centered on this book 
in response to who Jesus is and what he has done. And so this morning, as we look to the cross in communion as a church family, uh, let, let's rejoice in the God who cares for us, the God who cares for each one of us and for us collectively. Rejoice in that God who is continually pursuing us, even now pursuing us with his grace and his peace. Let's, let's put ourselves in the path of what he's doing this morning. Amen.